Okay. Good morning, everybody. I'm glad to uh, I'm glad to be here this morning. Although I'd rather be there this morning. I we've uh, done a few Zoom meetings. Um, Greenwood had some conferences that we did by Zoom, but I tell you, there's nothing like uh, meeting together face to face. And certainly that would be my preferred method of fellowship with you. But I guess this will have to be uh, for today is I still haven't uh, dug out from the snow. We have a lot of snow uh, here in Ledger. So uh, I have the uh, privilege this morning, uh, as you heard the announcements of uh, introducing your teaching for the next several weeks, which is the upper room ministry in John 13, 14, 15, 16. And that sounds like you're going to go into maybe some of uh, chapter 18 as well. So actually, before I run off here, let's, let's just ask the Lord's blessing upon our time. Our Heavenly Father, uh, we are grateful for what we are about to see and read in the scriptures. We're grateful, Lord, for the Lord's for your son's ministry to his disciples in the upper room and all that we can learn from it and glean from it. There are so many truths that we need to put into practice each and every single day in our lives. And I would pray that as this assembly begins uh, this journey uh, through this uh, topic, Lord, that it would be beneficial to all of those uh, who are listening and studying it together. We know, Lord, that your promise is that your word will not return to you void. And we hang on that promise and we stay in the word, uh, knowing, uh, Father, that it will wash us and uh, keep us on the straight and narrow path. And so, Father, we'd ask, uh, Lord, your blessing upon your time, upon our time this morning. Grateful, Lord, that your spirit is with us, each individual that is here. Uh, is able to glean from the truths that are in it, that you lead us and guide us into all truth by your spirit. We ask your blessing upon us in Jesus' name. Amen. So you're embarking on this study, and uh, the Lord <clears throat> uses his final hours this last night before he goes to the cross. He uses it to teach his disciples some basic things for living for him. And I would submit to you that he's preparing them for after his ascension. Certainly he has already begun to prepare them for what's about to take place in, in uh, Jerusalem. He's already told them that when he got to Jerusalem, that he would be portrayed, that he would uh, be uh, turned over to the Gentiles, that he'd be crucified, and then on the third day he would rise again. And he's been telling them that as, you know, at Wellspring we've been going through Matthew, and uh, we're actually into his final week of ministry, and we've seen everything that the Lord is doing to prepare his disciples for what's about to happen to Jerusalem. And I think this night is especially about what's going to go on after the Lord leaves their presence here on this earth and leaves them to their own, except for obviously he sends his Holy Spirit. And because of that, I think there's a lot of things that we can glean from these passages. This is uh, one of my 
you know, it's a, a favorite section of mine to turn to on a regular basis. But I'm just thinking about Christianity 101, because that's what you're going to get uh, in through these chapters. It's Christianity 101. You know, the Lord starts this final night before his crucifixion. He starts here in chapter 13 with a lesson in service and servanthood. And he does it using an object lesson, which is one of the things that I like about this chapter, especially. And then when he gets into 14, he begins to assure them of their, their future hope. And he emphasizes the fact that to know him is to know the Father. Chapter 15, we have the, the, the true vine analogy, which is the lesson of how important it is to stay connected to him, the true vine. Because it's the only way that we're going to be able to experience true love and peace in a world that will hate us because of who we are for his sake. And then in chapter 16, we, we learn of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, how it will help, how it will convict the world of sin and righteousness and of judgment, how it will lead and guide us into all truth. He tells them of the great sorrow that is about to come upon them, but that their joy, but that it would be turned to joy uh, because he has overcome the world. They should be of good cheer. And then finally, in, in chapter 17, we have the privilege of listening to the Lord pray to his heavenly father. He prays first that he might glorify his father through his own actions. And then he prays for his disciples, that they would be set apart for the ministry of the word and that they would stay in the word. And then finally, he prays that all believers would be unified in the fellowship of Christ with the father. That's just a brief synopsis of what you're about to get into. And obviously there's some things that I, that I didn't mention. There's a lot of details in it, but it is, I'm going to tell you right now, it's Christianity 101. And you may think, I don't need to hear this, but I'm telling you, we all need to hear it. We all need to be reminded of it on a regular basis. So let's, let's start <clears throat> this morning in John chapter 13, and I'm going to read uh, from verse 1 down to verse 20. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, 
He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him, therefore he said, you are not all clean. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. You know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I do not speak concerning all of you. I know who I have chosen, but, the script, but, that, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it comes, that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believe, receives whomever, most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Jesus knew that his hour had come. More than once in this gospel, um, there is a comment made that his hour had not yet come. The first one is at the wedding at Canaan at Canaan, when his mother approaches him and asks him to do something about the fact that they had run out of wine for the feast, the wedding feast. And the, the Lord clearly says, my hour has not yet come, he tells him. And then at another time that I remember is when he, the great I am statement that he makes in John chapter eight, and it says the Jews, they picked up stones to stone him, uh, but he walked through the mist because his hour had not come yet. Yet now is the time. Now is the appointed time. It's not a, a randomly chosen time. It's not faith. It's, it's, it's chosen for a particular reason, this particular time. It's carefully planned out. Everything that the Lord Jesus does is carefully planned out. And I think it's good for us to remember that even in our lives today, that there's nothing that happens or occurs on our day-to-day activities that he is not aware of and did not see coming. The Lord is not only about to go to the cross, but certainly shortly he's about to be lifted up into heaven and sit at the Father's right hand, and the disciples need to be prepared for that. And the Lord is, I think, looking in this chapter, as I've said, looking beyond just the events of Jerusalem, but I think he's looking about a time when he will be lifted up into heaven and he will physically leave this earth. The very first lesson that the Lord desires to give them, he demonstrates by washing the feet of the disciples. Keep in mind that prior to this night, the disciples have had an argument amongst themselves about who is the greatest in the kingdom. Two of the disciples would even approach the Lord Jesus and ask to sit at his right hand and his left hand as he comes into his kingdom, which upon hearing that, you know, the other disciples were pretty angry with him. 
but they're in this bower. I want to set the scene, and I and I and I'm going to use my imagination a little bit because I really love this scene. They're in a borrowed room. It's an upper room. It's an upstairs room. And a meal has is prepared and it's on the table and, and they're sitting at this table. Now, normally, uh, it is the custom in many places and, and then in Judea that when a guest enters a home that uh, a servant would come and wash the feet of those that have come in because, you know, their, their feet have gotten dirty from walking out on the road. Uh, but in this particular case, and, and normally that would be done by a servant. Very rarely would it be done by the master or the hostess, but it could be. But normally a servant would do something like that. But here there, there's no servant, and, and certainly none of the disciples take it upon themselves to wash one another's feet. And the Lord, knowing that he's about to return to his father, sets out to express to them how much he loves them. And so the men all seated at this table, probably I, in my mind's eye, they're, they're talking amongst one another. Perhaps they're laughing. Uh, they're enjoying one another's company. And suddenly the, the Lord Jesus gets up and he gets up from the table and he lays aside his garment and he, he, he gets a towel and he wraps it around his waist and a bowl of water, he pours it out and he approaches the first pair of feet to wash the feet of his disciples. As he begins to wash these first pair of feet, I, I, imagine, <laughs> I imagine silence coming over the room. They're, they're not talking anymore, and they're not laughing. They're, they're quiet. And in fact, I would say that this silence probably becomes awkward, maybe even embarrassing, as they watch their teacher and their Lord begin to wash the feet of his disciples. Perhaps it is that they may want to say something, but they're not sure what to say. And that's why I think it might get a little awkward for them. You ever have those awkward, silent moments with somebody, then you know what I'm talking about. It just doesn't seem right that what's taking place is happening, but it is. When the Lord comes to Peter and the narrative doesn't tell us, you know, how many feet were washed before Peter, before he got to Peter, or Peter's the last or in the middle. We, we don't know. The narrative doesn't tell us, but I can imagine because I, you know who Peter is. I just wonder how long Peter sits in this stunned silence before he finally is forced to speak up. And the Lord approaches him and Peter says, Lord, are you washing my feet? He's surprised. He doesn't, he doesn't, he's not sure what to do with that. Normally, something like this is done by a slave, a servant. It's a menial task. The Lord replies to him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Now that's a true statement, isn't it? 
we know that the Lord, uh, that the disciples learned a lot from the Lord. They heard a lot of things from him. They were taught a lot of things, and they didn't understand them. But they came to understand them later on. After he had ascended, the Spirit had come upon them. They could look back and they say, that's what he meant. And I think that that's true in, in my life, and I'm probably true in your life as well. There are things that I read in the scriptures that I, I'm not quite sure how to apply them to my life, or I'm not quite sure what the meaning is. But because I don't give up, because I keep seeking after what that is, I know in due time that the Lord will reward me by opening my understanding to what it says. And I would encourage you this morning, you know, the Christian walk and the Christian life isn't a life of instance. It's not instantaneous. It's something that happens and unfolds over time. And so while you may not understand something today, I think that you will come to understand it if you don't stop seeking to know the truth. Being a Christian is a process. It's a process. When Peter responds to the Lord, you shall never wash my feet. Uh, Peter's perspective here is, is, is wrong, and it's a worldly point of view, really. You know, from his perspective, those who are, do not take a lowly task like this. And he feels that it's beneath his Lord to do this. But that attitude needs to change. It's not an acceptable attitude in the kingdom of heaven. That's not the, the economy of the kingdom of heaven. It's different than the world. We don't operate on the world standards. And Jesus is about to show them what standard they are to live by. The Lord Jesus then responds to Peter. He says, if I do not wash you, you have no part of me. And, you know, Peter is Peter. You got you to gotta, you gotta admire him uh, because he really wants to, Everybody, including the Lord, to know that he's devoted to the Lord Jesus. He's all in. Every bit of Peter is in when it comes to the Lord Jesus. And so he goes in the opposite direction. He goes from, you're not going to wash my feet, to this idea, if, if this makes me part of you, then, then I want you to not only wash my feet, but I want you to wash my hands, and I want you to wash my head. You see, in Peter's mind, that would be the best way in this current circumstance to express how much he is devoted to the Lord. And yet, we all know Peter. He's the one who denies him three times. But Peter, he's just, he's one of those guys. He's just an exciting, he's excited about what he's doing. He's, he's, he just has a lot of enthusiasm. A lot of times his his brain isn't engaged before his tongue uh, speaks. But the Lord is seeking to teach not just a practical lesson on humility and service, 
but he's looking to also teach a spiritual lesson as well. And he makes this statement. He says, he who is, this is verse 10, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean. Now, from a practical standpoint, obviously, if I, if I, I take a shower in the morning, say it's summertime, and I take a shower in the morning, I, I'm clean. But I, I put sandals on and I, and I go out into the road and I, I, I spend my day in my sandals. At the end of the day, when I come home, my feet are dirty. And I'm going to need to wash my feet before I go to bed. I'm not going to need to take a bath again, but I'm certainly going to need to clean my feet. But if all the Lord was doing was talking about washing feet on a practical standpoint, if that was all he was talking about, then he would not have added a second statement. Because he continues and he says, but not all of you. Specifically, he's saying that not all of you are clean. There's a 12 men there, and he says that they have, they have been bathed, that they are clean, but not all of you. And John adds his commentary after that verse. He says, for he knew who would betray him. Therefore, he said, you are not all clean. Now, the cleanliness that he's spoken of here is a spiritual cleanliness. You see, Judas is not a true believer. He has not been cleaned completely. The Lord says, he who is bathed is completely cleaned. Now, we need to talk about what he means, not in the physical sense, but in a spiritual sense. What does it mean for you to be completely clean? Am I, as a believer, completely clean? From a spiritual standpoint, how could anybody really ever be completely clean? I know the struggles that I have. What is the Lord talking about? Well, the Lord is expressing a spiritual truth, which occurs when someone places their faith in the Lord Jesus as Savior. They are clean. They are cleansed, not with water not in a sense of a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense. As Paul writes to Titus when he says, through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. He's talking about a spiritual cleanliness. Again, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5 and 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. All things have become new. You are a new creation. The disciples are new creations. And, and what does that mean? Well, that means a new way of thinking. That means a new way of feeding this new creature that you are. And I'm not talking about physical food. I'm talking about spiritual food. The spiritual implications are this, that placing faith in Christ is a spiritual cleansing. And it has an initial cleansing, which happens at the moment of faith, and that it is a once-for-all-time cleansing. That's what, that's what he's saying. If you are bathed, you are clean. 
And placing your faith in Christ is that bath, that spiritual bath that you're taking. It does not mean that as believers that we will never sin again. Certainly that will occur. It does occur. It does mean that believers, though, now have been given the tools needed to live a life for God that is pleasing to God. And that's the calling. That's the calling of every believer. Once you become a child of God through your faith in Christ Jesus, that it is your duty, it is your responsibility, it is your calling to walk worthy of the Lord Jesus. And just like the washing of one's feet to get the dirt off of them as we have walked around through the course of the day, through the course of life, we're going to get stained. We're going to get some spiritual dirt on our hands and on our feet. There's going to be sin that we're going to be struggling with. There's also going to be this renewing of our mind that has to take place. And we need to be continually in the word that we might live that life that is pleasing before him. But I thank God for 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. When I was uh, first saved, there were some verses that I was given to memorize by the folks who led me to Christ. This was one of those verses. And I can remember the gentleman when he, he gave me these verses, he said to me, he said, Dan, you're, 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 right now you're feeling great. And I was, man, I, I'd come to know the Lord and I, I just could not believe how I saw things all of a sudden. My life is changing rapidly. And he let me know, Satan's going to come after you. And when he does, he's going to try and convince you that your sin is going to keep you from God. That's when you need this verse. You need to read this verse and you need to do what it says. And I'll tell you, that was a good lesson for me. One that even now, after 40 years of being a believer, I continue to use. But we also need the word of God. We need it constantly to remind us of what it is to live a life pleasing before him. The word of God, there's the psalm. How, in Psalm 119, there's the verses, how does a young man keep his life pure? By living according to your word, O oh Lord. Uh, we need the word of God to keep us cleansed and washed. There is a great illustration in the Old Testament in, re, in this regard. It is the, the priesthood. And you can read about it. We don't have a lot of time to go into it. I'm not going to, but in Exodus 29, when the priest is consecrated for the service of the tabernacle, he is bathed completely before he puts on his garments. 
never occurs again. But he will, after that, every time he approaches the tabernacle and wants to go into the tabernacle of the meeting, he will have to stop at the brass ladder in the courtyard and he will need to wash his hands and his feet lest he die. That's an Old Testament picture of what I'm talking about here. So now the disciples' feet are washed, including, by the way, Judas's feet. They have also been washed by the Savior. And the Lord sits down again, and I suspect that they're all still in stunned silence. They're probably staring at him, or maybe some of them are staring at their feet. I, you know, I don't know. It doesn't tell us, but I try and picture what that whole scene is like in my mind. And then he says to them, he asks them, he says, do you know what I have done for you? Now, it's a rhetorical question. He doesn't expect an answer. But we need to pay careful attention to what the Lord Jesus does when he answers it himself. Because in verses 13 and 14, he will use the terms teacher and Lord to describe himself. In fact, in verse 13, he says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. And in verse 14, if I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Now, the Greek word for teacher describes someone that teaches doctrine or gives instruction. The Greek word for Lord describes someone who is the supreme authority. So there's a difference in these words. There's a difference in these titles. Is there a significance in the order that is used? I certainly think so. The Lord says, at first, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so. And I think what he is referring to, I think, at least, and this is, I could be wrong, but, you know, these guys have lived with the Lord Jesus for three years now. They've sat under his instruction and his teaching. They're very familiar with him. And I think that they would see him more as their teacher than they would their Lord. And so the Lord uses them in that order in this first statement. But in the second statement, he wants to emphasize something. He wants to emphasize that he should be Lord. He should be the supreme authority first and foremost. Now, he's a teacher as well. But we, he's trying to get them to see, I am your Lord. Your supreme authority. When he leaves them and sits to the Father's right hand, their view of him needs to be correct. He is their Lord. <coughs> With that in mind, he makes an incredible statement in verse 16 when he says, A servant is not greater than his master. In other words, if I, your Lord, 
am willing to come here, take off my outer garment, wrap myself in a towel, and wash your feet. If I, your Lord, am willing to do that, and you are my servants, you are not greater than me. The Lord has given them an example. If he is their Lord, as their supreme authority, he is willing to strip off his outer garment, wrap his towel around his waist, wash his feet, including the feet of Judas. How can they do anything less than that? How can we do anything less than that? The Lord Jesus came to serve. You know, the Lord said, he says in Matthew 18, after the argument on the road about who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, he says, whoever humbles himself as a little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The Lord in Matthew 19 says, let the little children come to me for such is the kingdom of heaven. In chapter 20 of Matthew, the Lord tells them, whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom. For many, the Lord Jesus is our ultimate example of what it means to be in service to others. No task too low, no person who is above or below our attention. The Lord drives home this very important point, and he makes this point extremely personal in the washing of their feet. It's personal now. They will always and forever remember the feeling of having their Lord and their teacher touch their feet and wash it. That is embedded in their minds for the rest of their lives. And the lesson is that the kingdom will advance, not by the talents of great men, but by the power of humility and grace. The Lord wants them to see that the kingdom is different. The kingdom of heaven is different than the world and offers, and it runs with different principles. We don't lord over people. We serve them. Now it's clear from this passage that the Lord is in control, not only of the timing, but also of the events that are taking place. In fact, uh, Judas, who is not a true disciple, is going to, it will come to as a great shock. The fact that Judas is not a believer 
not a true disciple, will come to a, as a great shock to those, the other 11. After he is, after all, he's been with them now for three years, and certainly he was sent out two by two with the others to preach the gospel. He's witnessed all that has been taught by the Lord Jesus and all the miracles. He looks just like a believer. He looks just like the other 11. But he's not. How could Jesus claim to be who he is and still pick someone to be one of his number that would portray him? The Lord has already told them that not all of them is clean. And now in verse 18, he makes it clear that someone who has eaten bread with them will lift up his heel against them. He, if he doesn't let them know before it happens, I believe, the effect on this truth would be devastating. And what I'm talking about is, if they got on the other side of the crucifixion, and after they found out that Judas has betrayed him and hung himself, wouldn't they question the Lord Jesus and who he was if he had not told them beforehand that this was going to happen? And so he has to tell them. He has to expose Judas for who he is. And he does that. And when he does that, I would submit to you that that is an encouragement to them on the other side of the crucifixion because they're going to look back and said, you know what? He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly what he was doing. And that will give them confidence and it gives credibility, you might say, to everything that the Lord has done and to everything the Lord has taught them. Now, I, I got assigned 20 verses, and I have to tell you, at Wellspring, I get three or four. So, so for me, 20 verses, uh, that was like, that's a, that's a marathon for me. But I want, to, I want to conclude. I want to end this with a couple of stories because I want to drive home uh, the point here. Here is the thing about seeking to serve those around you. And that is this, that at some point in your life, you are going to need someone to serve you. I bet you didn't think about that the whole time that I've been talking here this morning, you're thinking about how you are going to be servicing other people. And that's a true statement. That's certainly what the Lord is aiming at. But I want to submit to you that it also goes the other way. When uh, my youngest daughter was born, uh, Patty had some medical issues. She had some blood clots in her leg. And, uh, I would say maybe a week after she came home with Jamie, our youngest, uh, she ended up back in the hospital. And she was in the hospital 10 days. Now, here I am. I now have a five-year-old, a three-year-old, 
had a newborn and uh, trying to take care of this. And, and I was a little overwhelmed, obviously. And people, obviously, from the fellowship, uh, people are always great. They're dropping off meals, and, and that's fine. That's easy for me to be able to accept that kind of help. But I can remember one morning, I think it was this, a Saturday morning, a woman shows up, one of the elders' wives, actually, shows up at my front door and knocks on the front door, and I open it, and... I invite her in and she says, she's asking me how things are going and if I needed any help. And I said, no, I got everything under control. Kids are doing well. And she says to me, well, I'm, now you you gotta understand that I'm working full time at the same time. I'm having to get Casey off to kindergarten and I would drop the the other two, the younger ones at a family friend at at another believer's house so that I could go to work and then I'd come home and I'd pick up them and pick up Casey and I'd come home and I mean, there was a lot going on. And this woman shows up and she says, I, I'm here to do your laundry. <laughs> I said, I said, you're, you're not doing my laundry. You, I, I don't, I don't need you to do my laundry. It's fine. I, the meals are good. I don't need anything more than that. You're not doing my laundry. She, she looked at me and she looked at me with those, you know, very stern face. And she said, Dan, let me tell you something. She said, the stains in your underwear are no different than the stains in my underwear. Well, <laughs> when she said that, I went down, I got my laundry and I gave it to her. I, I didn't want her to be that invasive into my life. You understand that? I didn't want that in my life. I didn't want her to get that close to me to be doing my laundry. You want to drop off a meal? I'm fine with that. But when you want to get into this space here, I'm not willing to do that. Well, I learned. I learned the fact, this this idea that not only do I serve, but when people are willing to serve me, I have to be willing to accept that and understand that that is the love of God flowing through that individual to me. In Matthew chapter 18, the Lord teaches a lesson about how to deal with a sinning brother. And, and you probably know the passage. If, if, if somebody sins against you, the Lord says you, you go to them and you confront them. And if they repent, great, you won your brother. But if they don't, then you have to go get two or three other witnesses and you need to take them to this brother. And if he still won't repent, and then you take it to the church. Think about that, how sad it is that it has to get all the way to the church. Why can't it just be done between two people? And I'd submit to you that pride gets in the way and that's why it escalates. But if humility was there and a brother or sister is willing to listen with an open heart and the two are humble and how they approach the situation and offer grace to one another, how much better that will be in the end.
what a better outcome that would be. Warren uh, Worsby in his commentary makes this statement in this regard. And it's, it's a great statement. I can't say it any better. And so I'm gonna just quote him. He says, it takes humility and grace to serve others, but it also takes humility and grace to allow others to serve us. So I wanna to submit to you this morning that you should be looking to serve both in practical ways and in helping others in their spiritual growth. I've had men, godly men, approach me and spot something wrong in my life and be willing to tell me what it is with humility and with love and with grace. And I am forever grateful to them for that. In the same way that you're looking to serve those around you, you need to be willing to be served as well. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I am uh, again uh, very grateful for the example of the Lord Jesus. My supreme authority the one who is willing to wash the feet, to take a lowly position, to take on human flesh, to submit himself to the cross and to death, to sin. That is the example of our Lord Jesus, your son, willing to surrender himself completely to your will, to die on the cross for my sin. Oh Lord, may it be that we as a people would take heed of this example and with humility and with grace serve those around us as we rub shoulders with them. May we love them as you have loved us. And because of that, Lord, we pray that the light within us shines brighter and brighter and brighter to a world that is in desperate need of hope and future. Lord, we want to be an example to the world of the love of God. And we know we can do that as we love one another. So we ask your blessing upon us in Jesus' name, amen.